Well, good morning. So if you're new here, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at LEFC, and we welcome you. Uh, we like to teach from out of the scriptures, and we are in a series from a book or a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul called 2 Corinthians. He wrote it to a church in Corinth, and we're actually going to turn there now, so if you could open your Bibles. If you need one, the ushers would be glad to provide you one, uh, and we'll be in that letter here this morning. So uh, this past uh, week, we looked at chapter 5, where it was God has given us the, the message and ministry of reconciliation. Uh, for those that have never known God, they were in separation. You know, when, when you were born, you were born with sin in your life, and, and, and that sin separates us from God. And, and even though, you know, we would love to think that each of our children that are born are the next Jesus to be born without sin, it doesn't take long before you realize, nope, Another one that's got the sin curse in them. And, uh, and, and, and so, but there comes a point in time where an understanding of their need for God happens. And, and you pray for that moment for your kids or, or for if you yourself are young and you have, don't have children yet, you're thinking, yeah, there's a moment that I realize, yeah, I am not perfect. Now, you might not live out your life thinking that, that, that on a regular basis, but the realities are we all have a nature that is selfish and will think on behalf of ourselves, and as a result separates us from God. And so uh, the, the ministry of reconciliation says this, that he who had no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin for you and I so that we can become ones in God's eyes as righteous without sin. And, and so this marked a message of reconciliation that we now get the ministry of. And for Paul, that ministry was worth everything in his life. And so we, I want to begin by reading verse 3 of chapter 6, and then we'll continue on to the rest of chapter 6. But verse 3 says this, we, and Paul speaking, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. He puts nothing in his path. He will put nothing in your path. As, as an apostle, he's like, I will make sure that nothing I do will hinder you from hearing the ministry or receiving the ministry or hearing the message I bring. It's all in. And, and, and he will protect it to the greatest end. When I was reading this and, and understanding as I, commentaries were, commentarians were saying, you know, Paul basically was saying, this is by which all decisions in his life are made, is to protect the message and reputation and the ministry of the gospel. When you live that way, it changes everything about what you do. And when I was thinking about this, have I ever seen somebody that is so sold out to one thing that they made all their decisions based on that one thing and as a result achieved it. And I was able to smile because I remembered this guy that I met my first week in college in my dormitory on my floor. I do not remember his name, but boy do I remember him. When we were meeting as a floor and the RA is asking questions to get to know us, now basically the questions are, so where do you come from? Uh, what have you done in the past? What are you getting a degree in? What do you hope to do? And we're all going around and, and you know, there weren't too many shocks around the room. It was very typical. But when it came to this young man, he said this. He goes, I've worked at Sonic since a sophomore year of high school 
And my goal is to own that Sonic. You're being polite. When you're freshman guys, we weren't as polite. We started like, really? Are you being serious? And he was dead serious. Like, I have worked at Sonic since my sophomore year of high school, and I want to own that Sonic. Now, most of us around the room, you know, we chuckled and laughed, and, and we're like, I think he's serious because he didn't, he was undaunted. It didn't matter how much we laughed. He smiled with us. He knew it seemed ridiculous, but that was his goal. That was his vision. And so he was going to walk that out. And so as time went on, he would say to us, he goes, okay, now you got to know that at our Sonic on Tuesday nights, it's dollar tot night. And so our floor from our dormitory learned early on it's dollar night at Sonic to go get some tots. And so we would get in our cars, we would go to Sonic, and we would get our tots with cheese on it, right? And, and, and this guy would come out, and he was one of the ones that would come out and deliver the food, and, and he would say, guys, thanks for coming out, here's the tots, blah, 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 and I put the cheese on for free, and, and so on, and he got permission to do that because we were showing up in droves. And, and so it was fun, and we had a lot, of, a lot of good time. Well, as we went through that freshman year, by the time we finished that freshman year, he was a shift manager at that Sonic. He had proven himself and, uh, as being worthy, so he was no longer serving us the tots, but he was guiding those who were serving the tots. He dropped out. He did not come back after that freshman year. By the end of our sophomore year, we're seeing him, and he is now, at the end of our sophomore year, he's 20 years old, he is now the manager of that Sonic. All right? Undeterred. He quit school because it was going to stand in the way of him buying that Sonic. He needed to spend more hours. He wanted to go through all the trainings possible to become a manager and work the way up, and he couldn't do it in staying in school. And you might think, he's crazy. But he was undeterred. He knew his goal, and everything he was going to uh, make decision-wise was either going to be to avoid any hindrances to that goal, or it was going to enable that goal. And so he kept going through. By the time I graduated from college. He is now 22 years old. He owned that Sonic. Now, you're thinking, that's crazy, but it's true. And when somebody sets their mind on something, and every decision's based on that goal and aim, and if you have some skills, you can potentially accomplish that in a pattern that would not be typical to American society. But I have to tell you, even though he was, came off a bit strange to us in that initial night, there was something winsome about him. There was something that was, it was refreshing to run into somebody at such a young age that, not, you know, we're all 18-year-olds that first, first day for the most part, and we're, we're hearing this like, here's somebody that knows what they want to do, and they're okay with it. They don't care what anybody else thinks. They just go for it. I, it was appealing. And so he ended up becoming one of the most popular kids on our floor. Even though he wasn't your typical jock or, or the typical popular kid, we just liked him because he was the real deal. Even if it was unique to the rest of us. And so I learned a lot about what passion can do, but passion that has one goal and everything else falls aside from that one goal if it doesn't lead to that one goal. Paul is the same way. Now, he wasn't aiming for a sonic, but what he was aiming for, what he was aiming for was to see the gospel advanced throughout the Roman Empire and, and throughout the world. And he was committed to it, and he was willing to set aside anything that would stand in the way 
or against that purpose. I mean, after all, it was Paul saying that, that I will uh, become a Jew to the Jews. I will become a, a, a Roman to the Romans. I will become whatever it takes to advance the gospel. So he was willing to give up his identity pieces in order to serve the gospel and meeting with other people. He was also willing to suffer greatly for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that gospel was going forward. He even went to a couple of cities and he even says in scripture, I did not take a dime from you because I didn't want you thinking that I was doing this to make money for myself and I wanted you to hear my message and not doubt the sincerity of it. He was that committed that even though it was his job, it was his ministry that he was going to advance the gospel, that he was willing to work and make tents with his hands in order to avoid the appearance that could become a barrier to the gospel that he was trying to fleece the people. No, he knew that he was all about the gospel and it was about the gospel being heard by both Jew and Gentile, by believer and unbeliever. He didn't care if, if it was somebody from another part of the world or, or another gender. It didn't matter. It was about advancing the gospel because we're all in need of reconciliation. We all fall short. We're all in need of God's work in our life. And he knew that. And so that everything he did was about advancing that. And so if it was going to hinder that ministry, he didn't do it. Or he wasn't a part of it. If it was going to advance that ministry, he was willing to do whatever it took. That's Paul. So let's go move on, because he's sharing this with a group of people that, again, his relationship is hindered. They aren't receiving him right now. He, they see him as somebody that's been very hard to understand and accept, but, but he is speaking into them, giving them confidence, saying, you are the aroma of Christ. You are the radiance of Christ. Your competency comes from Christ and by the Holy Spirit. So God can use you greatly. That's his message, but now he's speaking to them about making it singular, making the purpose of your life singular so that all things that God wants to do through you can be accomplished. So let's continue reading on with verse 3 to start again, and we'll go in. So Paul says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves or we commit ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships and distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in hand work, uh, in hard work, in sleepless nights, and in hunger, in purity, in understanding, and in patience, and in kindness, and in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, and truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness that's both right hand and left hand, and, in the, and through glory and dishonor, through bad report or good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, yet we're not killed, sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, and having nothing, and having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Paul is on his game. He is now speaking to the very thing that is the most important thing that is in his life, and that is advancing the gospel. And he's speaking into a people that, that are, are struggling because they've been hurt, they've been hindered. Society is coming against them with great pressure. They're wanting to relent, and he's saying, listen, you are capable, you are competent, God will use you. But he says, don't let anything deter you. 
So he sets himself up as an example of saying, this is the most important thing in my life. So regardless of what's going on around me, I am staying on that primary purpose. So he begins by saying, I have committed myself, I have entrusted myself to this work here on this earth. Even if, as it says in verse 4, even if it becomes difficult, extreme or intense, it does not matter. I will commit myself to the advancement of the gospel. And then he says in verses 6 and 7, he says, and I'm committed to a Holy Spirit-led life where the values of the Holy Spirit are my values. The values of God are my values. Those are my virtues. And in purity and understanding and in patience and in kindness and sincere love and truthful speech. Those are my values because of what the Holy Spirit's doing in me. And, and then he says, and I'm empowered by God with the weapon of righteousness in my right hand and my left hand. And so he's empowering me to use these things of kindness, sincerity of love, and truthful speech to advance the gospel. And it does not matter the outcome. And this is huge because if you think about the outcomes, we often will decide our paths based on what we think the outcome is or what the outcome is showing it to be. And he's saying, listen, I am committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, being advanced, whether the public receives it with glory or the public gives me dishonor. I still will give the gospel. I will still give the gospel if I hear of bad reports of people rejecting this message. Or if the message comes and it's good reports, I still will advance the gospel. I will also, regardless of the reception I receive, whether it's a welcome, we, we want you here, Paul, or whether it's Paul, what are you doing here? Paul will advance the gospel. And he will even do so, even if it's popular or unpopular, it does not matter. I'm advancing the gospel. And if I am beaten and I'm near death, I am still alive. So therefore, as long as I have life in these bones, I will advance the gospel. And if life becomes sorrowful, which can happen, I have sorrow when I see people that are rejecting Jesus Christ. Whether there's sorrow or there's celebration, I will advance the gospel. Paul even said, I will give up my own salvation if my brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters, would accept the good news of the Messiah that is found in Jesus Christ. And he said that I would do that. And it gave him great sorrow. And he says, you know what? Regardless though, even if I feel sorrow or there's celebration, I will advance the gospel. And if I become extremely poor, if I'm rich, I will advance the gospel. And lastly, he says, if I end up with much in possessions or I end up with little, I will advance the gospel. Is Paul committed? Yes, he is. He is speaking to a church that is struggling. They're being apprehensive. And it's understandable. They were, going under, they were under great conflict. They were under a lot of societal pressure. And Paul's saying, I've been there. I've been there. Don't lose sight of the one cause, the one cause that we have in our life, that you have been reconciled to God, which then gives you a ministry, a ministry and a message of reconciliation. We now have this. Do not let what is going on around you hinder you from the cause and the purposes of God. He is making this message abundantly clear to him. Then he says this. He draws it in personally. Now, I've been telling you over the last few weeks as we've been in this book that the relationship between Paul and the church was broken. It wasn't in a great state. And, and, but it, we've only been receiving hints about that to this point. Now it's becoming overt. Now you can see it. So in verses 11 to 13, look what it says. It says, we have spoken freely to you Corinthians, and have opened wide our hearts to you. 
We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. And he says, I'm speaking to you like children, as you're my children. So please, open wide your hearts to us also as a fair exchange. So open up your hearts. It's an appeal from Paul. Keep in mind, he founded this church. He was with them for two years, founding, founding this church, and then he went on to plant other churches, and he's made several visits to them, pleading with them to make appropriate changes in their church and health, but yet things continue to be difficult. We know that from the beginning part of 2 Corinthians that some things did happen that were good. In 1 Corinthians, which we taught that about three years ago here in this church, in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives them some instructions on how to worship together and how to, to be together as a church. And it was some tough teaching that Paul gave. We, we know and we get hints that they began to apply those things, but not with joy to the one who taught them. This is like a parent that tells their kid, this is what you should do to be good. And the kid hates receiving that instruction. But privately, they realize it's the right answer. I just didn't want to acknowledge it before them. And so they begin to apply it, and, but they give you no credit as parent or feeling of satisfaction that they've heard you. They just go and do it. You know what I'm talking about? And, 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 and even if you're still young, you know what I'm talking about. You hear what your parents are saying. You know they're right, but you don't want to give them the satisfaction that they're speaking well into your life right now. And so you kind of keep it kind of coy or cool about the fact that they actually know what they're talking about. And, and this is happening right here. It's like they have put things into practice, but they're still withholding their affection. They're not letting Paul be in relationship with them, even though they acknowledge that the things that he was telling them were needed to be heard. So Paul's in that precarious state that it's like he is giving everything he's got. He's not letting his popularity or unpopularity, he's not letting the report of good or bad deter him for advancing the gospel through the Corinthian church. He's staying the course with them in spite of them withholding from him. He stays with them. But then he appeals to them saying, engage us, open your hearts to us because we want to help you. We want to guide you. And then he says something that's important in this next verse. It's huge. It's a game changer for everyone here in this room. This may be one of the most applicable passages you'll read in the next year out of Scripture. I'm confident of this because the effects of this decision and this principle have ramifications beyond what we can even fathom or imagine. And that is this, that relationships are the key to whether or not you stay the course with God or you begin to go a different path. Relationships become the key by which you either stay on the path towards Christ, or you begin to walk a new journey. Paul has just given a litany of words and statements and, and possibilities of what could deter him from the main purpose, from his main thing. It's about advancing the gospel. And he says, regardless of all these things, I will stay the course. And then he goes relational. And I'm going to stay in relationship with you, even if you continue to withhold your heart from me. Because it's about the gospel. And I want you to know that Jesus' message, what Jesus has done for you, is not to be lost. And I'm going to keep it front and center with you. I'm going to keep sowing this into you, even if you withhold your heart. But I beg you, open your heart to me. 
One of the things he began to observe is that they were, and again, Corinth is a major city in the Roman Empire, a major influential city when it comes to the idea of society and societal norms. It was a significant influence in culture. And as culture runs, it runs through people. And relationships become the key by which culture rubs off on you. And so what does Paul say? This key thing about relationships is this. Verse 14, do not be yoked together with an unbeliever or with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what does fellowship, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What can, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Which Belial is an old Hebrew term for Satan or the devil. And so what, what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? There's nothing. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and a temple with idols? Or, or for what we are, we are the temple of the living God. And God said this, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Now this passage, if you've grown up in the church, has been taught over the years, usually in the context of marriage. And the reason for that is that in society, marriage is the highest covenant of relationship there is on this earth. It's just the reality. So it's easy to poke at this principle of do not be yoked with an unbeliever and speak to marriage. And that's fair. But the reality is, is that Paul wasn't talking exclusively to marriages. He was speaking to relationships. He was talking about committed relationships. And so when people heard this, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, they understood immediately what that meant because of the culture they were in. It was an agricultural culture. And so they understood the meaning of this. Now, we're in more of an ag environment here, so we can kind of get it. And we're still using horses around here, which is one of the few places of the world that can get this, all right? But, but let's just assume for a moment that most of us here in this room, while we live in Lancaster County, do not have the regular practice and understand all that goes into play when we watch teams of horses or mules or teams of oxen plowing in a field. So I'm going to use an analogy here. All right. Oh, my gosh. What I didn't realize it was that big of a reveal, but okay. So... For those that are going to hear this online, I just uncovered a yoke. And it's actually a very old yoke here. And, and it's got the place for two animals, right? And, and, and so in understanding this, I had to seek some professional um, information, some uh, experts on the issue of teaming two animals together. So I, I sought this, and, and it happens to be one of the, the person that provided this is in the room right now over here on the front row, so Greg Ludwig. So if you think I've given any inappropriate information, you hold him accountable. <laughs> and that's online well, as well, your name. So uh, <laughs> your, your phone number is... No, and some of this stuff I actually have known from my own years of growing up or having this passage taught. But here's a couple of key things to understand. In that day and age, 
when you would use a yoke, and it's still even true today, that a yoke was used for oxen primarily because oxen you cannot guide by a bit. They don't have the proper mouths to be guided by a bit. They're also not sensitive enough to be driven by a bit. So in, in the mouth that is. But horses, you can drive them by bits, so they're usually teamed together by pieces of leather and other things, not big stocks of wood like this. And so you need to understand it's about oxen. And so in their culture, they're thinking of that. The other thing you need to understand is that when you put two animals together like that, they need to be good team players. If you find a team that works well together, you keep them together. You're going to discover very quickly when you put two animals in, in the stock together, in the yoke, you're going to discover very quickly whether or not they're going to be able to lead and lead well together. And, and, and so if you find a team that works well together, you keep them together. If you ever sell one of them, you're selling them both. Just, just the wisest thing to do because once you find it, it's good to keep keep and you keep them going. Another thing to understand is that the leader, the lead, there is a lead animal in this, is always on the left, okay? So the lead animal is on the left. What that means is that typically they're the ones, then this is where I did have information from the past, there is a lead animal and that one is actually carrying the inertia of the weight of what they're pulling and dragging. The other one's go role is to stay with them and, and to let the lead happen, but to stay with them to keep the balance, okay? So that's how that works. And so when you have a lead animal and then you have another one, where you get into problems and teaming them up is if both of them desire to lead. Because what ends up happening is that there becomes confusion and there becomes chaos and they're not able to reach the goal. The goal is to plow a straight line. And if you've got two trying to lead and, and taking the order, you are not gonna, you're going to be fighting the team. The guide or the, the pilot of the team is going to have a hard time guiding them because he cannot communicate with both of them trying to get one to go in the particular direction to lead. So there must be an identified leader among the team. If one of the animals that's supposed to be the follower ends up trying to take the lead, you've got chaos and it won't work and the team will not function well. The other thing that happens is if the following animal decides not to, to, to let's say, take the opposite approach, where they're a lazy animal or they do not have, their strength is completely incapable uh, of being with the strength of the leader, then they're going to be pulling back on the leader and guess what's going to happen? If I'm the lead, I'm pulling this way, but this one's pulling back. You're going to plow a circle. It's not going to work. You need two that are matched well where one's not so incapable next to the other. And so you have a part, an important nature is that while there's one that's a lead and the other one is also pretty strong, they need to be appropriately strong to be in the stock with the other. All right? So it's really important to understand this. Now, in understanding this, if you think about this, if you have a relationship that is in a yoke, then there's got to be something where there's got to be a leader in that. And, and then they need to be able to work together in order to get to the same purpose. But that's where this comes in. Paul's context here is talking about that as a believer, we have one purpose. We have one direction. God has given us that purpose, and that is to, as being reconciled to God, we now have a message of reconciliation, and we have a ministry of reconciliation. That becomes our purpose, and God becomes our pilot. He is the one that is setting the direction. And then the one in the left side of the stock is who? 
Jesus. He is the one that's become the leader. And then the one that's coming beside are those that are with him. Now here's an interesting thing in scripture that may have never been understood by you. In regards to the heavenly father, where does Jesus stand? On the right side. So where does that place God? So who's the leader? The Father God. And Jesus is staying right there with them in tandem, in step. But God is setting the direction. And then when Jesus is in the, in the yoke and we're with him, who is in the, on the right side? We are. And he's on the left. There becomes a problem when we do not have that understanding. And when we're in the, in the stock with Jesus and we're going, the pilot is God. He is the one that is guiding us and saying, this is where we're going. And Jesus knows very where. He is very aware of where the Father is, is taking us. So he is leading us. We have to just stay with him. The problems come when we think we can lead and help Jesus out. And that's where the tension starts to happen is that when we think we can help Jesus out and we start taking the lead, we start thinking, you know what, I think this is the better path. Jesus is like, no. The pilot's saying we go here, we go here. And we start putting tension on it and we're not going in the right direction. Meanwhile, the pilot is guiding us saying, stay with the leader, stay with the leader. But we don't. And then we, we get to the point where our strength is not even anywhere near and, and we're pulling back on the yoke. And again, that means we can't go where we're intended to go. And so the pilot has to stop the plow. Paul understands that relationships are the key. They are the key by which we can maintain our navigation and going forward. It begins with the relationship with the Father. With the relationship through the Son to the Father. And then it's affected by the relationships we have with each other. Which is why Paul says, do not be yoked with an unbeliever because there is a lot of difference in the direction you're going. You have a direction that God has established for you that is here. And the pilot's saying going here. If you're putting a stock with somebody else and, you, and you're in a high relationship with them, a highly committed relationship with them, and they are going to have a different vision and goal. Because who's their pilot? Themselves. They do not have an authority in their life. So they establish, if you do not have God as the father of your life, if you do not have Jesus as the redeemer of your life, then you are the leader and you're also the pilot. And therefore, it's by the whims of your own flesh, your own um, energies of feelings that will determine the direction you want to go. And so you try to, to go straight. It's like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And then you start seeing other things. Now, I really like this over here. So you either have to disconnect or you pull them with you. And, and then you have the issues of, of then the strength is different. And, and, and so if your strength is going this way and you're trying to pull somebody that is going in a different direction, you're going to wear out when you're in a yoke with somebody going a different direction. You will wear out. And you'll move from being an influencer or the leader in that relationship to becoming the influenced you see, something is going on here that, that is so deep at the core. And I don't care if you're 10 years old or you're 80 years old in this room. Show me the circle of relationships where you invest the most. And I guarantee you that the circle of those relationships define likely your values and by which you live, your life decisions, where you're going, and the things that you're most passionate about.
It's just true. Where you're yoked guides you. And over time, if you're not yoked with Christ and then you're yoked with somebody else, you're going to end up being yoked in a different direction if their values are not the same. But yet Paul starts this whole context with saying, we have this ministry we have this message to which I am committed. And that ministry and message goes to both believers and unbelievers. So why would he say, do not be yoked together with unbelievers if his whole passion was to see unbelievers come to Jesus? The reality was, is he was speaking to a principle that was different from how the world treats it. He's looking at, we need to be in a place of strength by which we can influence and guide other people towards the gospel, not a position a passivity where we become the influenced. When I was in my 20s and I began to do a study, there was just something that I was struggling with. How is it that Jesus gets away with hanging out with tax collectors who rob their own kind and hanging out with prostitutes who obviously do the unmentionable and hanging out with people that were also lepers and were contagious? How is it that Jesus could do all of that Yet we're told to not have relationship with people that can misguide us or to be careful of the companions that we carry. What is going on and how can we reconcile that when Jesus says we're to live as he lives? So I decided to do a personal study. So one time I can tell you that I actually did something like that with nobody else initiating or, or giving me the thought. It was a deep question I had. I want to understand why Jesus can do that and it wouldn't be wise for us to do that. So I decided to do this. I studied the Gospels and I began to study how much time did Jesus spend with those who were yoked in with him and aimed towards the goal of honoring God's purposes in their life. How much time was he in the yoke aiming that direction with those type of people? So you have the 12, you have the 72 people that hung out with them, you had the 500 that were with them quite often. How often was he with those people? And how often did Jesus set aside time to go and be with his heavenly father? Just him and God. So I added all that up as much as we could. And again, the Gospels don't tell you how many hours, and it doesn't always tell you how many days. So it's really difficult to discern exactly the percentages of time that Jesus spent with those going in the direction of God's purposes. Then I added up the time that I best could discern from Scripture as to how Jesus spent time with those who were not aimed in that direction. All right. Then I, after seeing the results of that, I wanted to see, did that continue to play out in the book of Acts, in the early church? Did the disciples, who did they spend their time with? How much of their time was given to people in the church? And then how much of their time was given to those who did not know and, and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what I found was consistency. About 80% of Jesus' time and about 80% of the apostles' time in the book of Acts were spent with others that were going in the same direction. And then 20% of their time were with people who had zero clue as to that purpose, had zero desire to that purpose, and therefore had, were even sometimes antagonistic to that purpose. And yet I saw consistency with Jesus and the apostles, that they would spend time with those kind of people about 20% of the time. What I learned from that, again, it's, it, don't get too hung up on the exact percentages. I don't care if it's 71% to, to 29%. The point is, the clear and vast majority of Jesus' time was spent with those going in the same direction. He was pouring into them, giving them strength 
so that they would be in a position of strength and influence so that when they're with people that did not know Jesus, that they were the influencers. They were the ones that were pouring out. They could, could live as that aroma of Christ. They could live out as the radiance of Christ. You see, if they'd flipped it, where the disciples were going out and spending 80% of their time with those who did not know Jesus and only 20% of the time with those who uh, knew Jesus, I think that you would have seen a flipping. You would have seen the influence begin to weaken. Now, there are times when God calls us into places of where you are the only believer. We have missionaries that are in places where they're the only believer. But let me tell you, we have to pour into them significantly when they come back. They've been in places where they're isolated, and they need to take significant time on their own to set aside time to be with Jesus. They don't have the luxury of being with the church. But what I have noticed especially when I was a youth pastor, that when I saw teenagers, I could tell at age 14 whether that kid was going to end up being passionate about Jesus based on the friends they were choosing to be with. It's just the reality. I could tell at age 14 or 15 whether a kid was going to see Jesus as a primary purpose in their life based on their choices of friends. And I would say the same thing holds true based on us adults. By what we put around us, by as the primary source by which we receive our encouragement, our affirmation, and our passions, whatever is the primary investment into your life, that will be which you then purpose and value in your life. And so if those values and passions and, and, and modes are coming from those who do not have the value of Jesus Christ, then you will slowly die a death, a spiritual death. It's just reality. And Paul knows this and says, listen, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. They have a different pilot. It's not the Father God. They have a different aim, and it's not the purposes of God. They have a different person in the stock next to them. It's called them. And so therefore, they are not going to be going in the direction you want. And if you're yoked with them, you're going to be constantly stressed. You're going to be constantly pushed to go in a direction. And eventually, you're going to be worn out and you'll give in. You've lost your mantle of influence and you become the influenced. So what does Paul say to clarify this? And again, this was no mystery to them. Is that what values do we have in common with an unbeliever? They, we have righteous values to live out the righteous values of God. They have values that are more along with self-centered means or wicked means is the term he uses at the end of verse 14. But then at the end of verse 14, he also says, they also, we have a desire to radiate light. The realities are is those who are not walking in the light of Christ would rather you not see all the things they're doing. So how can that work together? Or, or, or then what harmony? When, when you have a good team, there's harmony. There's good strength. There's good strength here, but there's submission to the leadership of the other by the other strong one, and they let this one lead, and there's good harmony in that. What harmony is there if one wants to be the leader and it's going in the wrong direction and you have a different captain that's sending you this way. What harmony is there in that? What common ground then, verse 15, what common ground is there then to find in, in, in somebody that has a totally different purpose in their life? There isn't common ground. 
There will always be then compromise. If you put yourself in a yoke where there's a committed, intentional relationship with somebody that is not a believer, there will always then be tension that is in there that will weaken you and and cause you discouragement and will eventually mislead you ultimately in the end. So coming to complete agreement with somebody, complete agreement with somebody who has a different captain and a different end game. That is wishful thinking. It just will not happen. Paul uses absolute terms through this whole thing. There are no values that jive together between righteous people and others who choose not to be righteous or seek out righteousness. There is nothing that is, that is common between light and darkness. There's no harmony. There's no common ground. There's no common vision. And there's no common captain. God proclaims then several truths that if we allow ourselves to be in the yoke with his son Jesus, he gives these truths in verses uh, uh, 16, 17, and 18 where he says, I will live with them. If you're in the stock with me, if you're in the yoke with me, I will live with you and I will walk with you. I will be your God and you'll be my people. Come out from them then and be separate, be holy, be different and touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be your father. I'll be a father to you, and you will be my children, sons and daughters. This is my proclamation, says the Lord Almighty. If you allow yourself to be in his yoke with his son, he is giving you the promise then that basically he will walk with you, he will be your leader, he'll be your pilot, and then he'll put Jesus in the yoke next to you, and you will know how to go. He will walk with you, and he will draw you near then to himself, and therefore you will be unhindered and separate, and you'll be holy, and and you'll be his people, and then you'll experience what a loving God is actually all about. And he puts his name on it. Signed, sealed, and delivered. This is my proclamation. So which then leads me to this. What are we being told to do then? What is the principles to take out of this if he's saying, do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever? Well, I, I would say to, to, in light of what I was just sharing about how Jesus spent his time and the apostles spent their time, I think there's some things, some very practical things that we should hear here. That first of all, we have to be intentional in our relationships. We got to be intentional. We can't just be, uh, uh, you know, just, it just doesn't matter to us. We're just going by the, the seat of our pants. Whatever happens, happens in our relationship. No, we have to be intentional. And so the first thing we got to be intentional about is this relationship, drawing near to Jesus. You must be intentional about drawing near to Jesus. Put yourself in the yoke with Jesus. Let him be the lead and and develop your strength alongside of him. He will not mislead you. He will guide you. And then you need to draw near to those who are pursuing Jesus as well. Draw around yourself your closest confidants, those that speak into your life, those that would have the, the influence upon you going in a particular direction. Choose those whose direction is the same as Jesus. Draw close to those friends that your aim may be right and you have the common and same pilot. Lastly, and this is really important again about intentional relationship, you have to also be aware, what are your relational tendencies to compromise? See, how where I might compromise relationally and where you might compromise relationally could be different. We need to become aware of ourselves. Where do we tend to inappropriately commit in relationships where it could cause us to lose our influence and we become the influenced. 
Again, keep in mind, Paul is helping this church be placed people of influence upon the lost. So it's not, not having relationship with them. It's having the appropriate relationship with them. So he's giving them strength. Be near to Jesus. Pursue Jesus along with others pursuing Jesus so that you have the same yoke, same purpose, same pilot. And then be aware of where you might compromise and stay far from it. Lastly, when it comes to health in your relational world, I think God wants you to be that light and radiance that, he, that we talked about, that Paul talked about in chapter 5. He wants you to be that light and radiance uh, for him to those who need Jesus. But you find that from a place of strength. So hear that. You can only be an aroma of Christ. You can only be the radiance of Christ if you're operating from a place of strength. And that's a person then that draws near to Jesus and is hanging out with people who are pursuing the same thing. Then God can use you to be an intense light and a, and a great smell to those who are in need of Jesus. And if you are in a marital relationship where one has a different pilot than you, this is an unfortunate thing because you're now at a place where God says, listen, you are, when you commit together in marriage, that is now God's will for you to continue to fulfill that marital bound. That is a covenant between you and God. But the challenge is, is that some people come to Christ when their spouse is still not a follower of Jesus. What instructions are we given? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the first 24 verses, gives us instructions. If you are married to somebody who does not have the same pilot as you, he gives you instructions on how to operate in a way that will help them. And so the intent is then, if you are in that relationship, draw near to Jesus, draw near to those who are pursuing Jesus, so that you can then be a person of influence in your spouse's life and love on them. And perhaps, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7, they will begin to see the light of Christ in you and be drawn to his glory. And lastly, there are so many relationships. Again, best friends, business partnerships, and, and, and key confidants, attorneys that you might be seeking legal counsel from. Be careful who you commit in those relationships to. Because in the same way, those are relationships you put yourself in the stock with. Do they have the same vision as you? The same direction? Is, is Jesus the leader in their life? Is the pilot in their life the Father God? Because if not, your counsel that you might be receiving from them, or the life modeling that you might be getting from them might be sending you in a complete different direction. And the tension will begin and it will wear you out. Choose carefully the relationships you're in. Make sure that you're equally yoked. And if you are in a relationship that you realize is not going to move in the direction towards God, then you need to be praying. Not talking about a marriage relationship. I'm talking about other relationships. If you're in that relationship, you need to pray. Prayerfully discern. Is it time, God, to move on from this relationship? Because if it's defeating you, if it's causing your influence to go down, and it's weakening you, then you need to go to a different place. It's at this moment that I want to call out a verse that I think many of us have heard. It's going to be on the screen. It's in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is speaking, and he says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. 
He doesn't say that life will be easy. No, he just says that when there's tension in this world, because when you're pulling a plow, it gets heavy. But if you're in the stock, if you're in this yoke next to Jesus, and he's the lead, then you merely walk beside him and stay with him, and you'll gain strength. And then he says, my yoke is easy then, and my burden is light. He does this to help us learn. He says, take my yoke upon you. I'll teach you. I'll help you learn. I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm the leader you want to be next to because I'm going to care that you learn from me and as you stay in step. Do not reject me as your lead partner. Let me show you what it means to follow the pilot, the Father God. I've always wondered why Jesus could get away with saying, my yoke is is easy and my burden is light. Because life is hard. But what I didn't understand is life is hard and getting through it with Jesus at my side makes the burden lighter and the yoke is something that I can tolerate because it's next to the one that's humble and gentle and compassionate and cares about me. That's the message that we get to offer to other people. Be yoked appropriately to the lead animal and you'll get a good team. And then you'll go in the direction you want to go. Jesus, thank you for being the all-sufficient one. Thank you that you were obedient till death, to death on the cross. <laughs> so thankful that you stayed the course. And you didn't leave the right side of the Father and his will and leadership. You stayed in step. And therefore, now we can be locked and yoked with you and discover life's purposes initiated by God as our pilot. Thank you for providing the means by which that could happen. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? This will just be the final commissioning here. It's interesting. It was shared by a soldier uh, in this room that attended first service, he said, you know, we're trained in the military that as the sergeant who's running a platoon through a drill, the sergeant's always running on the left side of his platoon, guiding them and moving them along in the drill. And if you are walking alongside someone of a higher rank, you walk on the right side and let them have a half step on you so that if they turn right or left, you can be right there with them. I think that's great analogy. I think it's God designed because just in that simple little practical protocol, there's order in the military. Imagine the order that would come in your life if you were committed to one single purpose, that anything that would hinder it, you would set it aside. Anything that would enable it, you put into practice. Just like a young man can own a Sonic by age 22, God can do amazing things through you if you're solely committed to him. Let that be the yoke upon you because he wants to teach you and he's humble and gentle. And he, his burden is light and his yoke is easy. Amen. You're dismissed.